Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's episode, here's a quick message about a podcast called Boom Lawyered. Boom Lawyered brings you real talk on the courts and the law that you won't get anywhere else. Legal experts Jessica Mason-Piclo and Amani Gandhi deliver smart, timely, and hilarious takes on the issues you care most about. Boom Lawyered is produced by Rewire.News, a publication devoted to journalism on reproductive health, rights, and justice. It's never been more important to know what's going on in the courts. So check out Boom Lawyered today. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mary Harris. I'm the host of Slate's new daily news podcast, What Next? And I have a question for you. Do you ever get a push notification or a news alert on Twitter and think, no, stop the news. I want to get off. Then What Next is the podcast for you. Each afternoon, we're going to break down that headline you've seen your friends retweeting all day and tell you what matters, what doesn't, and what next. Just look for What Next on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. See you there. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. Whatever is asked of us, I am sure we can accomplish it. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. There are a record number of women running for office this year, and we're telling their stories. We're also looking at why there are so few women in office to begin with, and what it would mean if Congress looked more like the people it represents. Something we're talking about a lot this year is authenticity. Many women are abandoning preconceived notions when it comes to who should run and how they should run their campaigns. Women are also turning historic stereotypes on their heads. Today's show is one of three in which we're talking about candidates whose experience counter the age-old misconception that women are weak. I can't type. I don't take dictation. I won't sharpen pencils. I can't file. My boss calls me indispensable. For many years, women candidates were advised to minimize visibility of the parts of their lives that might bring those stereotypical weaknesses to the front of voters' minds. Joe Piazza spoke with me about that norm. Joe is a political journalist and the author of a new novel about a woman running for office called Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win. So one of my favorite anecdotes involves campaign mailers, those glossy pamphlets or postcards that you get in the mail from campaigns. For so long, I mean, all of American political recorded history, women candidates were told to, one, not include their families on those mailers, and two, to strike a power pose, arms crossed, leaning against a wall that is almost certainly photoshopped out of the picture, or arms crossed, one hand under chin. Look strong, look smart. Women were told to run like a man. Women were told 
Appear strong because we don't think that you're strong. Appear smart because we don't think that you're smart. And pretend that you're not a mother if you are a mother. It's clear this election that the mentality has shifted. Women are appearing in ads with young children, and in some spots they're even breastfeeding. They don't have to prove that they're tough like a man. It's evident in their personal and professional experiences. Women used to be told, you have to look strong like a man, but now women can actually say, I am very strong. I'm actually a veteran. Or look at me fighting for our country overseas. Or look at me working in cybersecurity. These things that for a long time women were told they couldn't be doing. And also, if they were doing them, women were so focused on getting those kinds of positions, on being those kinds of things, they weren't thinking about running for office. That isn't to say that women no longer face judgment about family structure and career experience. Julie Dolan talked with me about the line women have to walk. She's a professor of political science at McAllister College. Julie studies gender and politics in the U.S. Women still, in this day and age, have to walk a fine line between coming across as too masculine, thus having lost sense of their feminine side, and too feminine and not being able to withstand the rough-and-tumble nature, the competitive nature of politics. So for all female candidates, they have to do something to convince the electorate that they have what it takes, that they are masculine enough to get the job done. That brings us to our candidate of the week. My name is Abigail Spanberger. Abigail is the Democratic candidate running in Virginia's 7th District. She was born in 1979, 63 years after the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress and 59 years after women won the right to vote. My father was a federal law enforcement officer, and we moved around a lot. When I was a kid, I was born in New Jersey, and we moved up and down the East Coast until we settled in Virginia, and my parents stayed there and retired there. I'm the oldest of three daughters. I have two younger sisters, and my childhood was a really lovely one. My mother was a nurse. My father was a federal agent. We grew up really focused on our community, really engaged, and I think that that was a contributing factor to my leader decision to run for office. Absolutely a contributing factor to my desire to pursue a career in public service. Abigail's family was always engaged in the world of politics. From a young age, she remembers being involved. I remember excitedly getting to stay up late to watch the Democratic National Committee convention. And then even as a child, we used to canvas, you know, and my parents have always been big yard sign and bumper sticker people as well. We talked very openly, not just about politics, but also about engagement and issues that ultimately are political issues in terms of things that my parents were advocating for and working for. So I think we grew up very interested in topics and very interested in politics, but from a, a neighborhood point of view in terms of knocking doors and talking about politics around the dinner table. Abigail knew she wanted to take a very specific career path. She wanted to be in the CIA. After I graduated from the University of Virginia, I moved to Germany and I initially was teaching English there and then I entered a graduate program. I got my MBA in Germany in an English language program. I was there on September 11th and I had always planned on moving back to the U.S. after graduate school and after maybe working in Europe a couple of years. And I wanted to pursue a career with CIA. That was always where I wanted to be. As a kid, I was always fascinated by collecting information and by languages and other cultures. So I thought it was really the perfect place for me to have a career in public service. But I was in Germany on September 11th and at that point made the decision that ultimately, if I want to be serving my country, then what am I waiting for? Abigail finished her graduate program in Germany and moved to Washington, D.C. She applied to a variety of federal agencies. 
Soon after she applied, she got a conditional offer from the CIA. With all the medical testing, psychological testing, background checks, and the like, Abigail didn't begin work at the CIA till almost four years later. In the interim, she became a federal agent with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, where she worked on narcotics and money laundering cases. She says her experiences there were formative. I would participate in narcotics-related arrests, and I also happened to be a Spanish speaker, so I would often be included on cases that may not have been my own because of my language skills where I could come in and interpret what was happening until other interpreters could come in. There were multiple times throughout my time in law enforcement where I was the single person in the room who could convey and explain to somebody who was under arrest or whose house was being searched what was happening was a really serious level of responsibility that I think was incredibly formative for me, particularly as a young professional. When Abigail became a CIA operative, she moved all over the place. From there, I became a case officer with the CIA, and I was based in D.C. for a time. I was based in Europe and then ultimately on the West Coast. I worked varied issues as the CIA case officers, also known as operations officers, and I worked everything from terrorism to nuclear proliferation cases to economic issues. The goal and the purpose that I was fulfilling was to ensure that our policymakers and our president could make really informed decisions about issues of national security. It was an incredible career. It was an incredible job. I loved the travel. I loved meeting new people. And I loved really being focused on answering otherwise unanswerable questions that I knew were really guiding some policy decisions and ultimately to keep our country safe from a terrorist threat and uphold the Constitution. And I believed very deeply in what I was doing, and and I loved it. Part of Abigail's job at the CIA was working to accomplish missions with people who were different from herself in many ways. She was certainly in the minority as a woman in her role. As a CIA case officer, there are not a ton of women case officers, and certainly There were times when I was the only married woman case officer. I don't think I ever worked with another woman who was a case officer who had children directly. I mean, there certainly are others, and I have friends among them. So I'm used to working in predominantly male-dominated fields. I'm pretty comfortable with that. The fact that politics is historically male-dominated doesn't really faze me because that's where I've been professionally. Abigail and her family then decided to settle down, and she left public service. My husband and I, we had this conversation one morning with our oldest daughter. We were talking about where we might go next in the CIA. You bid on a variety of different places and (laughs) hope you get something you want. And we were talking about like all these fantastic places. We should apply. What did she think? And what was really meant to be kind of a whimsical conversation and a bit of a geography lesson. Our daughter really took to a pretty serious place. And so we talked about all these different places and we showed her on the map. And she said, well, what about Virginia? And we said, oh, no, 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 you know, it's mommy's job. We're not going to go back to Virginia, but pulled out the map and pointed all these places again. And, and she said, but everybody we love is in Virginia. Why wouldn't we go back to Virginia? For us, it was actually a really interesting point of inflection for what it is that we wanted long term. And, you know, I've been so focused on public service and I've been so focused on working in national security that I also had maybe not focused on building up a community and investing in a community the way that, frankly, I had grown up with my parents being so involved in my community and in my school and, you know, in different volunteerism that that they participated in. So in 2014, we decided to move back to Virginia. And I left CIA at that point, which was a hard decision. But we came back to Virginia. I got a job in the private sector and we did pivot from the public service to kind of a community focus. And I started a Girl Scout troop 
and began volunteering with a couple of different organizations. And my husband became a soccer coach. And that's where we were investing our time and trying to invest in our community. She was inspired to run by the divisive and at some points offensive rhetoric used during the 2016 campaign. We saw someone on the public national stage bully people, demean people, and just add a level of vulgarity and anger to what should be a conversation about where we're going as a country. Watching the 2016 elections unfold and watching how our conversation as Americans were shifted because of one person and how there are people who chose not to go home for Thanksgiving in November of 2016 because of the types of conversations that became so pervasive and so acceptable. That is not the country that I serve. That is not the way that I engage professionally or personally at any level. And I think for me, watching that was a major motivator to just saying this needs to stop and I want to be a part of changing it. Abigail is one of many women who decided to stand up in response to the election of our current president. Here's Neera Tandon on the surge of energy. Neera is the president of the Center for American Progress, a progressive think tank. This is a really inspiring time. What I'm hopeful about and optimistic about is the response in the country. We have women leading the resistance at every level. So women are flooding town halls and making calls to Congress for doing the hardest of all work, which is running for office and putting themselves out there. For Abigail, the partisan division and constant stalemates in Congress were antithetical to what she understood as public service. For me, it was watching so much of the divisive rhetoric coming out of Washington and watching the way that some of our most important policy discussions were just being boiled down to ideological party standpoints that people weren't trying to solve a problem. People weren't even defining what their goals were. The only goal was to defeat the other side, be that a conversation related to healthcare, be that a conversation related to taxes. My history of service and my involvement as a public servant, our mission was always to do something positive. Our mission was to serve the country. Our mission was to protect the country. Our mission was to complete this particular task and collect this particular amount of intelligence. And so the idea that digging your heels in was, in fact, the way that so many people were operating, for me, it was really just inexcusable. And when we look at what we need as a country and when we look at what our communities need, the fact that we would volley to this place where it was just hyper-partisan, angry rhetoric, it was not what I found to be acceptable. And I felt that we needed people who were willing to stand up to that type of language and stand up to that sort of partisanship and, frankly, stand up to that lack of progress. So I started considering running for office. She decided to participate in a program put on by an organization that we've spoken about before, Emerge America. I participated in a program called Emerge which is a program that's for women who are interested in either furthering their advocacy or potentially running for office. So I applied to that program thinking, eh, maybe someday that I'll run for office. That was right after the 2016 election that I ultimately submitted my application and really thinking that I would probably play a greater role in maybe supporting 2017 elections or you know, much further down the road that I might consider running. And really, I started the process of thinking about it bit by bit. Here's Ashanti Golar, the political director of Emerge America, on what they do. 
Emerge was started in 2002 with Emerge California, and our president and founder, Andrea Ducille, realized that she lived in this very progressive state, in this progressive city, but when she looked around at the elected officials, there weren't a lot of women. So she created Emerge California, and it took off, and other women were starting to take notice of this really great training program. And in 2005, Emerge America was created to replicate Emerge into other states. And for us, we know it's important to give women the tools to run for office. The fact is running for office is hard. If it was easy, everyone would do it. But to also do it in a way where they were with like-minded women in a comfortable situation where you can not only talk about what you needed to do to run for office, but the trials and tribulations that women have when they run for office. If you want to hear more from Ashanti, check out our second bonus episode. And Ashanti will be on another bonus episode this Saturday. She was part of a panel at the National Women's Party that I attended and recorded. A quick aside, this episode is brought to you by Audible. I drove to and from that panel in D.C. from North Carolina. I couldn't have done it without listening to Audible. All the latest political must-reads are on there. Or, if you need a break from politics, Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original content to peruse. You can get a free audiobook of your choosing with a 30-day trial membership if you go to audibletrial.com slash womenbelonginthehouse. Yes, I said any audiobook you please for free. Check it out at audibletrial.com slash women belong in the house. Deciding to run wasn't just about determining that her resume and skills were a fit for the job. Abigail also had to consider the personal toll her candidacy might have on the people around her. Her decision to run wouldn't just affect her. It wouldn't just affect her nuclear family. It would affect a wide circle of loved ones. We talked about the decision, I would say, almost ad nauseum. For us, we decided if we were going to do it, we were going to be 100% committed, which is how we are and what we are. We were very honest with our kids and with our family. My husband and I are both from the 7th District, so we've got his parents, my parents, my two sisters and their families, his two brothers and their families, kind of all in the greater area. So we talked to them about what would the impact be on them. You know, with a name like Spanberger, when my brother-in-law walks into a store, People may or may not recognize his last name. So the ramifications are greater than just my little nuclear family. But everyone has been incredibly supportive from day one. And I think it's been a, an interesting experience for all of us. But we did talk about it. My husband and I talked about it for weeks upon weeks upon weeks before I ever decided to run and got a lot of the support and buy-in from our families that we knew we would need in order to really make it work and to minimize a lot of the impact, particularly on our kids. So my parents got a puppy, which our girls love. So they love to spend time at their grandparents' house because of the puppy, you know, those sort of little things. Love that. Bribing them with the puppy. <laughs> Not bribing, but I'd yeah. be happy to be almost anywhere <laughs> for a puppy. I'm okay calling it bribing. It's fine. <laughs> and my mother-in-law makes a lot of Rice Krispie treats, so we're good. As was the case for many women running, Abigail's final decision to take the plunge came in response to a specific policy issue, health care. Ultimately, it was in May when Congress voted for the AHCA that I decided that day that I would definitely run. And it, for me, really boiled down to, in light of all of this partisanship and in light of the fact that so many were driven by ideology, watching Congress vote on a bill without really acknowledging or diving into the impact that that bill would have on millions of Americans 
it ran counter to everything I had ever worked for. And so as an intel officer, I was collecting information. I was running through all these contingencies, running through all of these scenarios for the sole purpose of allowing people to make really good decisions about policy, you know, and, and this side of the foreign policy. And the fact that we had a Congress that was not making an informed decision or certainly not speaking to the information provided to them, but really just making a decision based on ideology, it was unacceptable for me. And I felt it was an abdication of their responsibility to really be elected representatives representing the people and understanding the impacts of their decision on people. That was the day that I definitively decided that I was not. My time in public service exposed me to the best and the worst of people and the best and the worst of what it is that we can see in this world. I think it affirms my optimism that it is always worth it to work for and stand up for what's right. We have these tremendously difficult, complicated problems that are facing our country, and people want really simple answers. And I think my time in intelligence has shown me that there is never a simple answer and that there's oftentimes not one right way to do something. That's a skill set and perspective that I bring to politics that I frankly think will be valuable because we do need people who are willing to accept that there aren't simple answers and you need to work really, really hard to figure out how you can best get to whatever answer it is that you need to get to or what policy is going to be the best choice given all of these external factors that need to be weighed and viewed. Since she made that final decision to get into the arena, a lot has changed for Abigail. I am making tremendous shifts and sacrifices in every aspect of my life, especially coming from an Intel background. I was I was happy to be a frequent observer. I was happy to be a lot more anonymous. The fact that I have my name on signs and my face on TV commercials, it's very strange to me and not something that I particularly enjoy. So that's been a shift, just giving up a level of anonymity and normalcy. You know, I do have children, so recognizing that I'm bringing that shift in our life to them has been a challenge. But in part of my decision-making, I recognize that as an eventual outcome, and I think that it's all worth it because I do believe so deeply in the reasons that I'm running and what it is that I hope to achieve by running and getting elected. She's running in a district that has historically been held by Republicans, but one policy area that Abigail has on lock is national security. Both she and her opponent in the Democratic primary were actually seen as stronger on national security and foreign policy by many than her Republican opponent. Abigail hasn't faced the historical sexist stereotype that women are weaker when it comes to those topics. On the Democratic side, we were already bringing out this discussion topic that here are these two Democrats, the background in national security and a background in public service. So that was where we were even just writing the narrative for the Democrats writ large. And then to have me come out of the primary as the nominee, I think just continue that. And I am running against someone who has said that foreign policy is mind-numbing, is on, on record as having said that. So I think it's a pretty easy place for me to assert myself as having strong experiences and any kind of attacks or attempts to weaken me would really just, they don't really hold much water given my background. Running against an incumbent makes it harder to win. Still, this wouldn't be the first time her district supported someone new over perhaps a better-known name. We begin, though, with the major political upset for one of the most powerful Republicans in the country, Eric Cantor, the number two GOP lawmaker in the House, beaten in the primary by a Tea Party candidate. Yep, that's right. Cantor lost to David Brad, a political unknown. Cantor was widely thought to be the next Speaker of the House. He spoke to disappointed supporters last night. 
Here's more on Virginia's 7th District. We have 10 counties. We are located in central Virginia. We are a long, skinny district, and we wrap around the city of Richmond in the middle of our district. And the thing that I think is really interesting about our district is there are a lot of challenges facing people in our district. We've got the typical challenges related to healthcare and jobs and educational-related questions about how is it that we can make sure that our kids are getting an education that can lead to a good job. But we also have infrastructure issues that vary place to place. And in our population center in Franklin Chesterfield, there's great internet accessibility and you know a lot of strong road infrastructure because those are the newer growth areas. But in our more rural counties, we have significant issues related to broadband access, which is not just an economic issue, but it's also an educational issue that really impacts our citizens. And then in the northern part of the county, we've got some folks who make long commutes into D.C., and we've got a number of federal retirees. So even the northern parts of our districts that are rural counties are very distinct from the southern parts of our district that are also rural counties. The more time we spend exploring the district, the amount of differences that exist county to county are pretty substantial and interesting. While we are a bit gerrymandered and diverse for that reason, I think the silver lining is that this district does present an opportunity to really try and find common ground with people from across the country and really advocate issues that will help different counties within the district or different populations within the district while also really being important to people in other parts of the country. In her district, Abigail says she's seen a swell of activism. I've heard that from people all over the country. People, and particularly women, are stepping up. From the healthcare issue to the Me Too movement to the words and behavior of the president, people want to do something about what they hear on the news. Here's Neera Tandon again. I think the largest political rally or political mobilization march in American history happened as the Women's March just the day after the inauguration. And I think those women have since stayed engaged in politics by being the backbone of the resistance. Women who have health care who are making calls every day to defend the Affordable Care Act or going to a town hall are just really trying to hold their members of Congress accountable. If Democrats are going to win in November, they're going to win via the political action of millions of women. What I hope happens is that we have these women engaged in politics and they stay engaged in politics. This is a generation of women who can form our politics if they continue to stay engaged. And what is even more exciting is they're not just working on the congressional race from the Senate race. These are people who are getting involved in their local Democratic politics and registering voters to run for their city council or their town council or their county council. And it has the ability to transform the country, again, for not an election, but for elections to come. Abigail says she's certainly seen that in her district. I think that when we talk about 2016 and how it resulted in all of these candidates running, a part of the conversation that gets missed is how it also impacted all of these new activists and all of these newly engaged folks. I can speak for the 7th District. We have so many new groups, in addition to the Democratic committees across our district, that are engaged in a really, truly meaningful ways. In early 2017, within our district, we had groups that were organizing not just political events, but also advocating for people within our community. And there was a big movement to pay off school debt, lunch school debt, which is a really big problem in some of the communities within our district. So there was a big movement among a lot of the activist groups to just collect money to pay off the school debt. And as a community, we ended up paying off thousands of dollars worth of school debt. There was a movement to collect school supplies for students. And a pivot in this place where things felt really rattled 
to engage in the community. And that was both politically and also in civic engagement. It's sometimes lost that a lot of these people were engaged in their communities already, be it in PTA, be it as a coach for a particular sports team, be it advocating for a road closure or not having a road closure. And they've just turned that attention towards politics. They're not people who are new to organizing. They're not people who are new to being engaged citizens. It's just for the first time they're now engaging in politics with the same level of fervor and excitement and commitment that they were engaging with those other things before. The rise of activism in some cases extends beyond party lines. People are working to solve issues they care about and to enact change. Christine Matthews is doing just that. We spoke to Christine in our previous episode about the Republican Party. She was a Republican pollster for 30 years before, in 2016, she decided that she couldn't identify with the party anymore. Now, she's focused on issues, and her number one area of concern is the environment. She started an organization called One Planet. So far, One Planet has endorsed just one candidate, Abigail Spanberger. Here's Christine. After the 2016 election, so one step for me was to say, listen, I'm an independent now. I'm not going to work for a Republican Party that I just don't recognize anymore. The other part of me was sort of despondent over where we were headed on the environment. Republicans can't even say climate change, and Democrats are concerned about it. That is depressing and upsetting. So I joined not with two consultant friends, but two of my mom friends who felt exactly the same way. And we wanted to tap into this energy we felt. You know, we saw the Women's March, the record numbers that turned out in D.C. right after Trump was elected. And we just felt it, this energy among all the women that we knew about wanting to get involved, wanting to do something, wanting to say this direction's not okay with me. So we founded One Planet, which is a women's advocacy organization. We're not just supporting women, we're activating women on behalf of climate change. We wanted to form a group of women voters to show up and say, yeah, actually, we're going to vote this issue. There are going to be consequences if you don't acknowledge it and don't work towards solutions. So that's what we do. We also have an associated federal PAC. So we're going to give to candidates that are good on climate change. So for 2018, we focus on one race. That is Virginia's 7th Congressional District. We picked this race in February to focus on well before it was on anyone's maps. Now it's considered a toss-up race. The incumbent, Dave Bratt, is someone who doesn't take climate seriously. He's like, yeah, the climate's always changing. And he is running against a very strong woman candidate, Abigail Spanberger, who has a very serious approach to issues, wants to work on climate. We're focused on getting her elected and helping make climate change one of the reasons that women support her in that district. Abigail's focus on issues, including the environment, stems from her personal perspective and value system. Her focus may be different from other people's because her combination of life experiences, from the private to the professional, is different too. I think it's always beneficial when any legislative body or anyone representing a group of people has a diversity of experience and perspective similar to those of the people that they're representing. And I think Congress needs more diversity of age and gender and experience and perspective because it's in having those differing perspectives that we're going to be able to have people who can really weigh the pros and cons of different issues. And when we're looking towards making informed decisions, 
understand what could be some of the potential impacts or outcomes. And so the things that define me, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm married, I grew up in the suburbs, I live in the suburbs. Those are the sorts of things that define my experiences. And I have an understanding of what it's like on any issue related to education or related to my hope. I'm still at that point where I'm aspirational for my kids' future and what opportunities exist for them forward-looking. And that's my perspective. And there are other people whose kids are grown and out of the house and their perspective is more historically, these were my experiences. And having diversity of background and race and religion, all of these things inform who we are and how we look at questions and challenges. And I think the more that we can have different voices with different perspectives, sitting around the table discussing issues, impacting a broad brush of Americans, that's valuable. Without having people with diverse experiences around decision-making tables, the people in charge can have real blind spots when it comes to creating new laws, organizations, or ideas. When I visited Debbie Walsh, she talked with me about that. She's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. We hear these kinds of stories all the time, and they go back in time, and they're still current. One of my favorites was a woman legislator in Iowa who was the only woman on a labor subcommittee that was talking about a jobs training program, kind of retraining. And a target audience for this group were single moms. But nobody in the room had raised the issue of childcare, of having some kind of childcare component in that bill. And she sort of sat there and was kind of like, do I have to be the one? Like, do I always have to be the one? And she raised it. It's not that the men said, no, we can't have childcare. It just didn't even occur to them. And once they heard it, they were like, oh, okay, that's right. We need to do that. But there needs to be a voice in the room that's gonna raise the issue so that it gets addressed. It's widely accepted that women running for office tend to get asked more about family and kids than men in the same position. On the one hand, that seems unfair. On the other, until more women are elected, maybe it's helpful to hear how women candidates actually are balancing campaigning with home life. Here's Abigail again. Women candidates do get asked a lot of questions about family and a lot of questions about more personal things than I think typically men receive. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I think sometimes people initially say, oh, you know, women candidates are just treated differently and that it's automatically viewed as kind of a sexist thing, which perhaps there's certainly elements of that. But I think what's actually really interesting is I get the feeling that a lot of people on the campaign trail want to have a fuller vision of who I am as a person and not just as a candidate. And for many people, that also digs into who my family is, what my husband thinks of all of this. What does it look like to have a family and be campaigning all the time? I think that's an interesting thing, and I'm curious as to why it is that people might be more concerned about my whole personhood, if you could call it that, versus a male counterpart. And maybe it's what people are looking for connection points in areas of similarity. And I have had people about my age say things like, I'm really excited about your candidacy because you've got kids and you get it. But at the same time, I think there's something really valuable for women who might be thinking about running for office, there is a curiosity about like, well, how is she making it work? And so I almost do think that till we get to a point in time where it's totally normal to have a lot of women running for office, and it's totally normal to have a lot of women in elected office, that I think there's some value in asking the questions of like, how does it work? And what have been the challenges? Because people are thinking about it. People are wondering about it. Certainly I did. But I was always afraid to say like, oh, but how does it work with your family? Because that felt like the wrong question to ask someone. To some degree, maybe it's good that the conversations are being had proactively because people who might not have otherwise run might feel 
empowered to do so because they have had the chance to see someone with XYZ similar experiences now doing it. It's like it's chicken or the egg, right? That's Tori Van Oot. She's a freelance reporter based in Minneapolis. She's covered political races all over the country. You need more people to run in order to normalize it. And until more people run, candidates might face internal questions or external questions or pressure about what's the deal with this as a young mother running for the office, as a pregnant woman running for the office. Can you do this job? Well, of course you can do this job. Serena Williams was out winning tennis championships before and after giving birth. Women can walk and chew gum at the same time. Women can run for office and have a family at the same time. It's like juggling any sort of difficult and high profile job with your family life. It's the sort of thing that only more women running and only more representation will change. Here's Joe Piazza again. For a long time, we saw political candidates as one thing, as a white male with unflappable hair. And that started to change as we saw more women run for office. But even a lot of the first women running for office were women who had already raised their families or women who were well-supported financially by their fathers, by their husbands. That's all changing right now. We're now seeing women run for office who are mothers of young children, who are single mothers, who are single women. We're completely seeing the face of the candidate change, and that's really only in the past four years. I mean, we have had a couple of token races, and I don't want to call them token races because I'm not dismissing them. I'm just saying we haven't seen many different kinds of people running en masse until now. And it does matter. I mean, one, it changes the face of what we think a politician looks like. Most people will close their eyes and still picture that a little past middle-aged white man with unflappable hair if they're told to picture a politician in their brain. That's also what television and movies tell us a politician looks like. Women generally face so many different challenges on the campaign trail about what they should look like. People are just figuring out what a woman, quote unquote, should look like on a campaign trail. For a long time, women wore only power suits on the campaign trail. They've only recently started wearing jeans and a button down. It's crazy. It's totally out there. Or dresses. I talk to candidates all the time who tell me that their clothes are the one thing that is criticized by voters all the time. And they're criticized because people don't understand, because it's just something different. They're trying to wrap their head around it because people don't like change. I, too, have heard stories about women candidates being scrutinized for their latest outfit. It's a tough balance to strike. These women have to be put together enough, but also not too fancy. It's a balancing act that takes energy. Here's Abigail. I'm kind of an uptight dresser in any way. Like, I was former government. For me, like, not wearing black suits every day is kind of just... I think I'm a little bit trendier. I am now causing my team in the car to laugh at me over that assertion. But I did have unsolicitedly women tell me yesterday that I was too dressed up for a brewery event and that I need to not dress up. But I was wearing capri pants, so I don't know what's so formal about capri pants. But I also have a father who mows the lawn in like a button-down shirt, so that's just where I come from. So <laughs> Love that. Yeah, I'm not sure I, I would ever call capris fancy, but um, I like yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> You look like you're dressed for a board meeting. You have to dress more casual. I'm like, who the heck wears capri pants to a board meeting? But okay. Anyway. The focus on what women wear is another example of how we as a society are unused to women politicians. We focus on differences. It's not that there haven't been any women, but men are the norm. 
the more women who run and hold office, the more we as a culture will internalize that. Perhaps sometime soon, there will no longer be lingering questions about whether the so-called fairer sex can handle the grueling, male-dominated work of governing. It feels like the enthusiasm this election may really help push us forward. People are channeling their anger, their fear, and their hope to strive for progress. Here's Abigail again. It's tremendous for me to see the level of enthusiasm and people who are working to achieve the change in our country that they believe we need to see. And I met a man who actually said to me the other day, he lives in Powhatan, one of our rural communities. It's not hugely democratic as some of our rural communities aren't. And he said, you know, for the first time in my life, I had someone knock on my door. And he tells me the story about how this mother and her young daughter were out canvassing for our campaign. And they were just delightful. And they talked all about my candidacy and our campaign. And he was just so excited, excited that we had somebody out in his neighborhood, which has never happened before, and excited that there was this mother and her young daughter who were giving their time towards the campaign. And so then he plans on volunteering as well. Those are the sorts of things that every day along the way make me really excited about what we're seeing in our district. And I think it's indicative of it's similar to what we're seeing in other districts, but it's also why we can win and why this tide change really speaks to the fact that when we do have a shift in who our representation is in Washington, we need to like honor a lot of the changes that those campaigns made in terms of accessibility and engagement directly with voters. Because I think that there's a hunger for people to really be involved in a meaningful way with the politics around them. So we need to make sure that when a whole bunch of us get elected, we're continuing to govern and represent in a way that's reflective of how it is that we campaign and engage with voters early on. Next week is our third episode featuring a candidate who's worked professionally to protect our country and support its role in the international order. She worked for a guy whose name you might recognize. My real passion was international relations and had the opportunity to join the Obama administration at the beginning of 2011 and ended up spending six years working as a senior advisor to both of his secretaries of state. More on that coming to you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. And if you didn't, let me know. Let's start a conversation. This movement is all about reaching out to the other, increasing empathy for opposing viewpoints, and sharing in the quest for justice and progress. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan, follow us on Instagram at WMN.media, or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you next week.